Well, good morning, Pillar Church. My name is Kanan Parker. I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church. And as always, it's a joy and an honor to be able to open up God's word with you. I want to tell you the story that happened a couple of years back. And now that I'm saying a couple of years back, it was back in high school. And that was almost 20 years ago for me. Oh, <laughs> I feel so old just even saying that. So almost 20 years ago, when I was in high school, I got a phone call from one of my homies on a Friday night. And he was like, yo, Kay, we're going to go kick it in Lee's basement about six, seven o'clock. Why don't you swing through? So I'm like, cool, man, I'll be there. Six, seven o'clock, I'll be there. You know what I mean? Cool. Hang up the phone. Six, seven o'clock, roll around. Lee lived in the coast. Wasn't that far from me. I lived in the port. And so I swung over to Lee's house, hop on the phone. I called my man, Noah. And I was like, Noah, man, I'm outside. Somebody come let me in. He was like, cool. Wait a couple minutes. And I noticed ain't none of my homies' cars outside. But I don't pay that no never mind. I keep waiting. I don't, you know, I don't see nobody coming. I don't hear anything. I start looking through the window, start ringing the doorbell. And as I'm ringing the doorbell, I get a phone call. It's Noah. Like, yo, okay, where you at? And I'm like, bro, I'm outside, man. Where you at? He's like, yo, bro, I'm outside. And I'm like, nah, man, stop playing with me, man. Where you at? Let me inside. Quickly, I realized, oh, oh, wait a minute. I'm at the wrong Lee's house. You see, I'm thinking about our friend Lee, whose house we used to go to from time to time, who lived in the coast. But they were telling me about hanging out in the basement of another Lee, a friend who lived in North Cambridge, who happened to be a girl's house, who had a little pool table in her basement. And it should have tipped me off when they said, yo, we're going to kick it in Lee's basement. Because in my head, I was like, yo, I didn't know Lee had a basement. You know what I mean? So I'm thinking we about to discover a new spot that we get to chill at. But no, it was a completely different Lee that we were talking about. They were talking about our friend Girlie who lived in North Cambridge, who had a little pool set up and a ping pong set up and couches and stuff. Big old basement. We got, we got to kick it out. And we would go there from time to time too, but less frequently than the other Lee's house. And so quickly I realized, man, we're talking about the wrong Lee. We ain't talking about the same Lee. And I felt foolish. And what's funny is when folks get to talking about Jesus, oftentimes we realize through the midst of the conversation and through little trigger words, man, I don't think we're talking about the same Jesus. I think you're talking about a different Jesus than the Jesus that I'm talking about. You see, this morning we're going to continue our series in the book of Jude called Contending for the Faith. However, we're going to step back from Jude proper this Sunday. We're going to step back from the verses we find in, in the book of Jude, and we're going to contend for the person of Jesus, the Jesus of the scriptures, the Jesus who offers eternal life. And we're going to contend for that Jesus amongst and in, and in the face of other Jesuses that we think we may have encountered in our life. Last week, we looked at Jude verse four. We talked about false brothers snuck into the church by stealth. It said that these brothers were ungodly. And we know that they were ungodly in their heart and in their character. It says the, the, the text tells us that they were unsound in their doctrine of grace because they would turn the grace of God into sensuality. And that through their actions of taking advantage of people and using the grace, uh, the doctrine of the grace of God to do so, to take advantage of people, that they were ungodly in denying Jesus through their actions. 
Now, denying Jesus through our actions is something that we're not uncommon with, right? We know people and we call them hypocrites, people who claim to believe Jesus, but their actions show us otherwise. So it's common that we see people denying the Lord Jesus through their actions. But something that is just as common that the book of Jude doesn't specifically speak on, but something that we deal with on a daily basis is people who are actually rejecting Jesus, not maybe not, not just in action, but in word. And they deny Jesus, the true Jesus, the real Jesus, because they're speaking of uplifting and worshiping a false Jesus. They're following to some degree a fake Jesus. And we want to talk about those fake Jesuses. Mark chapter 8 verse 27, Jesus asks his disciples, you know, Jesus has, has worked up a lot of fame at this point and, and, and people are speculating as to who Jesus is. And in Mark chapter 8 verse 27, Jesus says these words to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they begin to give different answers. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're the prophet. Some say you're you know, you're Jeremiah, or you're, you're, you know, they, they give different answers for who Jesus is. But then Jesus takes it, the question off of who do the people say that I am? And he gives the single most important question in all of human history to his disciples. And it's the single most important question in all of human history for you too. He says this two verses later in Mark chapter eight, verse 29. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Who gets to define Jesus? See, the big question is, do you know Jesus? Do you know the real Jesus or do you know a Jesus of the making of your own imagination? A Jesus that you cooked up with your own thinking and that you propped up and replaced the real one with the phony. You see, it's important that we get Jesus right. Jesus is the one who claimed in, in John chapter 14, he said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that means we had better get Jesus right. See, to have the right Jesus, we know we have the right way, that we have the right truth, and that we have the right life. We need to ensure that we have the right Jesus. You see, that little hint of, man, we're going to kick you in Lee's basement should have been enough to tip me off to show me that I had the wrong Lee. One little bit of information can make you go to the wrong destination. Ooh, that was off the top. One bit of wrong information can lead you to the wrong destination. In fact, you know, a couple of years ago, and this is less than 20 years ago, I also worked on a cruise ship. And, I, and I'm giving you this example so that you can understand how intricate a degree is. I used to work on a cruise ship and I was the ERA. I was the engine room assistant. And I used to take care of the engines and generators on this cruise ship. But I was also a deckhand. And as a deckhand, we used to steer the ship throughout the waters as we received directions from the captain and from the first mate. And so they would say, you know, Five degrees this way, two degrees this way, midships, which means go back to zero, you know, five degrees this way, you know, ten, five degrees. And so they would have us turning different degrees based on how we needed to navigate the sea during that particular voyage that we were on. Now, there were times where they would say, go three or four degrees to the left or to the right, and I would go maybe five or six degrees to the left and to the right. Now, in a short distance, that doesn't matter. You know, being off one or two degrees, 
going a short distance, doesn't matter. But if he said, go three degrees left, and I went three degrees left, and we were going a long distance, you can imagine how wrong you can be simply being one or two degrees off if you're going a long way. You see, one degree off from here to you is just a little bit. But if I'm going all the way down to California and I'm one degree off, that's going to leave me in another, it's going to leave me in another state. It's going to leave me somewhere in the middle of the ocean. One degree matters. Being off one degree matters. One degree off can send you the wrong way. One degree off can give you false truth. One degree off can give you an unredeemed life. We have to get Jesus right. We have to have the right Jesus. By the end of this sermon, or maybe these two or three sermons that this one is going to end up being, my prayer is that God grants you that you not only know about the right Jesus, but that you know Jesus, that you actually know the right Jesus, that you can say what Peter in Matthew 16, verse 16, that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. You see, the older I get, the more I realize the devil doesn't care what you believe. The devil doesn't care what you believe so long as it isn't the truth. See, the devil doesn't care what Jesus you worship as long as it's not the real one, as long as it's not the right Jesus. And so what the devil does is he likes to he likes to throw demonic distractions in front of the person of Jesus and in front of our eyes that cause us to reject the person of Jesus and reject Christianity outright because of this demonic distraction. I remember the first time I encountered a demonic distraction. I was a little boy. And I went into my grandmother's bedroom and on her wall, she had a red and white cross. And next to the red and white cross, there was a picture of white Jesus. As I saw that picture of white Jesus, my little, you know, five year old mind came up with this theology. If Jesus is white, that means God is white. If God is white, that means Christianity is white. Boy, I hope God has mercy on me because I'm not white. I had this whole false theology based on a photo or a picture of somebody who's not the real Jesus. I don't know who you want to say he is. Caesar Boja, I don't know. Whoever he is, he's not Jesus. That dude's not in the Bible. He's not the individual that Peter said is the Messiah, the son of the living God. I know some of y'all see that picture and you're like, what's the big deal? You see, the big deal is white Jesus and white Christianity has been used to, to, to do violence to black and brown people over the course of history. Most notably during the transatlantic slave trade, where they would say you need to bow down to white Jesus and obey your white slave masters if you ever want to have a chance of making it to heaven. Ignoring every single text that talks about doing justice, having uh, loving people with equity and equality and how every individual is an image bearer equally of God. Apart from any text that says you are not to steal men, they would highlight White Jesus, white Christianity, white superiority, therefore you must submit. And if we want to get to heaven, then oh, I guess we must submit to white master because white master serves white Jesus. Oh, it, did, it suffers violence to black and brown people physically, emotionally, and mentally. That picture still gives pe makes people get triggered. I remember I was preaching one time, open air preaching in Boston with a friend. 
And as we're preaching, we're downtown. There's a bunch of black and brown brothers around us. And my friend is giving the gospel. He's a white brother. And in his presentation, he had a picture of white Jesus that he was going to pull out of his pocket and stick it in the canvas. Because during this gospel presentation, he would paint the gospel on the canvas in some unique you know, uh, creative way. And, and, and in the middle of the presentation, he's going to pull it out and put it there as a centerpiece of the painting. And I remember as soon as I saw the picture in his pocket, I started praying to the God of heaven and earth, Lord, get rid of that picture, please. He has no idea of the stumbling block that that picture is for brothers like me. Please get that picture out of here. And you know what? God answered my prayer. He pulled it out. He tried to stick it in and the wind was like, and blew that thing away. I was so happy. I was praise dancing. And we got to share the gospel with people of all different tribes and tongues and nations. We got to share the gospel with these individuals. You may say, how did white Jesus come to be? See, oftentimes those who espouse white Jesus, they take the Israelites that live in Israel now and they read those people back into the first century Israelites. And by doing that, they ignore the history of Israel. They ignore that Israel throughout its history has been intermingled with Gentile blood. I mean, I, just a few days ago, me and my discipleship group were reading in the book of Nehemiah. After Nehemiah was finished building the wall, he returned back to King Xerxes. And after some time, he said, man, I want to take a hiatus and come back and check on my people because he was deemed the governor of Jerusalem. And when he got there, he saw that the people of Israel were intermarrying with the other nations that were dwelling in the land at that time. So much so that the sons of these, inter uh, the sons of these mingling marriages of two different nations, their sons and daughters didn't even know Hebrew. They spoke the language of the Gentile land instead of the language of the Israelites. And so all throughout the Bible, that's just one example. All throughout the Bible, we see Israel mixing and matching with other nations. Even in the bloodline of Jesus, we find Gentile blood in the person of Ruth and others. And so to think that the people of Israel that are happening there now are exactly what the people of Israel looked like during the first century is probably unwise because they're also ignoring uh, Alexander the Great in the Hellenization of the entire region, giving them one language. And you best believe when somebody comes and takes over a whole region, they strongly influence. And in this case, it was a European influence. They strongly influence the place that they overtake and oversee. It doesn't mean that they displace the people. It just means that they influence the people and the people demographically will surely change a little bit. You see what the devil likes to do in America is he likes to play on the baggage of our nation. And he gets those who are the cultural majority to make Jesus into their own image, thereby misrepresenting the savior and misrepresenting the faith. And what happens is it encourages cultural minorities to throw the baby away with the bathwater. But we need not do that. We need not do that. We don't need to do that. All we need to do is be faithful to the text. You see, what happened then is there was a pendulum shift, right? There was a pendulum shift from white Jesus to the second demonic distraction or another demonic distraction, which is black Jesus. Black Jesus isn't in the Bible either. Black Jesus isn't the one that Peter said is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Black Jesus is a response to the one-sided historical narrative of the majority culture taking God and making them into his own image. 
All these people did is do the same thing that the majority culture did. Oh, you're going to take Jesus and make him into your image? Well, we're going to take Jesus and make him into ours. And I've heard the arguments for black Jesus, especially in my context. I hear it all the time. I hear like when Herod put out the word to kill all the babies so that they would ensure that they killed the Messiah. You know, Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt. They would have been found if Jesus didn't blend in, obviously, right? At least that's the argument. You see, Jesus had to be dark skinned. He had to be a black baby in order to blend in Egypt. Because if he didn't blend in, he would stick out like a sore thumb. And if he stuck out like a sore thumb, Herod's boys would find him. But that's based on a false presumptive premise. Who said that Jesus needed to blend in in order to hide? First of all, right? First of all, who said Jesus had to look like the people he was hiding amongst? All he had to do was get out of the jurisdiction of Herod. If he got out of Herod's jurisdiction, if he got out of Herod's reach, Herod can't touch him. So you presume that he had to look like the people or the place that he had to hide in. But secondly, and most importantly, we presume that Egypt was monochromatic. We presume that everybody in Egypt looked exactly the same, had the same ethnic hue, had the same ethnic color. We assume they were all dark-skinned in Egypt, right? That they were ethnically homogenous. But that's not true. Historically, that's not true. In fact, if you go all the way back to the days preceding Moses, back when the Hyksos ruler, the Hyksos pharaoh, sat on the throne of Egypt, and the Hyksos were a Semitic people. And so in Egypt, there was ruling a Semitic ruler who was not inherently from Egypt. Them and their people were dwelling in that land before the days of Moses. What makes you think that all of a sudden Egypt went monochromatic after that? If you want to know more about that in the Hyksos reign during the, the time of Moses, I talk a little bit about that in the first sermon in the sermon series, Freedom from Oppression, where we talk about in, in, in Exodus uh, chapter one. We assume that there are ethnically homogenous people there. You're assuming that, but you're wrong. It's probably more like current day Brazil, where you have Brazilians of every Hugh, you got dark Brazilians, light Brazilians, um, uh, olive colored Brazilians. Church, pillar church, don't let the physical appearance of Jesus lead you away from the real Jesus. Jesus was a Middle Eastern dude who looked like a Middle Eastern dude. Have you ever thought about this? In the whole Bible, okay, listen to this. In the whole Bible, there's only two descriptions of Jesus. Right. In the whole Bible, there's only two physical descriptions of Jesus. One is in Isaiah 53 and the other one is in Revelation chapter one. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus was even born, which means that this description of Jesus was a prophecy, not even an eyewitness. Now, it doesn't mean it's not accurate. What it means is that this is not somebody looking at Jesus and then writing down what he looked like. This is a prophecy of what the Messiah will look like. And you know what it says in Isaiah 53 verse 2? It says that he was not impressive, that he had no majesty whatsoever to himself, and he wasn't particularly attractive. Jesus looked like your everyday dude. Jesus was your average Joe. That's what he looked like. And that's what the prophecy speaks of. But the second one in Revelation chapter 1, verse 14 through 16, is a description of Jesus that I've heard people try to use to defend black Jesus, white Jesus, whatever Jesus you want to. 
You see, the problem is, is that the, the book of Revelation in chapter one, Revelation as a whole is apocalyptic in genre, which means that it's not always speaking in literal terms. And the context will tell you whether or not, they, whether or not he's speaking, the author, John, is speaking literally or figuratively. And in Revelation chapter one, it says that Jesus had white hair, white woolish hair. And they would say, see who else got wool hair, but black dudes. Well, he's actually highlighting the color of the hair, not necessarily the texture. But, the, but if you want to say that the hair is literal, that the hair is literally white as wool and the texture is wool, then that means he literally has fire in his eyes. That means he literally has feet like burnished bronze, which could be brown, but it also could be orange. It means that he literally has a voice like cascading waters. That means that he literally, this dude literally has stars in his hands. That means that he literally has swords coming out of his mouth. It means that he literally has a face shining as bright as the sun. If, if y'all can't tell that that's symbolic language, speaking of majesty and power and other wonderful attributes of Jesus, of the person of Jesus, then you just can't, you just can't read. You need to go back to school. This is obviously not a, not a, a literal rendition of what the Messiah looked like. It's highlighting certain attributes, certain, certain characteristics of the Messiah. Hear me on this. The most important person in all of human history has no authoritative, accurate portrayal of what he looked like. Why do you think God did that? The most important person in all of human history has no accurate portrayal of what he looked like. God did that on purpose because he didn't want you to be distracted by what the Messiah looked like. He knows that people are going to lift themselves up over other cultures and other peoples based on what the Messiah looked like, based on what his hue was, how much melanin he had in his skin. The substance, of, the substance of Jesus is not in what he looked like, but in who he was and what he accomplished. But let's also look at this from another angle, right? Religions around the world use the name Jesus, but they reject what the scriptures actually teach about Jesus. They say the name Jesus, but they read into him another meaning, another person. See, Mormons believe in a Jesus, but their Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in a Jesus, but their Jesus is the first spirit creature created by God the Father. Muslims believe in a Jesus, but their Jesus was a good teacher, but he certainly was not the son of God. And he was subpar to their premier prophet, Muhammad. And black Hebrew Israelites also believe in a Jesus, but their Jesus may or may not be the son of God based on the camp that you're talking to. But he's surely not God the son. And his uh, cross work, his sacrifice on the cross in and of itself is surely not enough to redeem sinful humanity. All of these false Jesuses are taught by false prophets. Pillar Church, don't be swayed by them. Some of y'all have a Jesus that you cooked up in your own mind. Some of y'all worship a Jesus who surely would never condemn somebody for the sin that they've committed. Some of y'all worship a Jesus who he himself was a sinner because after all, everyone's a sinner, right? And so Jesus must have been a sinner. Some of y'all worship a Jesus that forced you to abandon your ethnic heritage rather than to be unified in the midst of it on some old Revelation 7. Who is the real Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Who gets to define him? See, we want the real Jesus. We need the real Jesus. Counterfeits won't do. 
fake slack fidelity. If we want true salvation, we need the real one. We need the true Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus because there's power in the person of Jesus, right? But only in the real one. The Holy Scripture, the, the, the Jesus of the Holy Scriptures, the historical Jesus. That's the Jesus we want. Who was Jesus? Well, among other things, we're going to look at Jesus, who's the prophet of all prophets. We're going we're to look at Jesus, who's both the priest and the sacrifice. We're going to look at Jesus, who is God and man. We're going to look at Jesus, who is king and servant. And we're going to look at Jesus, who's the Messiah, the son of the living God. If you want to study the person of Jesus more in depth, I suggest to you a book by uh, a dude by the name of Stephen Wellam. And the book is called God, the Son Incarnate. It is really good. A couple hundred pages is just great reading. Go ahead and get it. I commend it to you. But first, let's look at this. Jesus is a prophet of the Most High God. He is the prophet of prophets. Look at Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two. It says, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. A prophet is somebody who speaks on behalf of God. He is the mouthpiece for God. A prophet, when, when the prophet speaks, God speaks. R.C. Sproul says this. I paraphrased it. He said, a prophet of Israel was not a fortune teller, an astrologer, or a crystal ball gazer. A prophet was singularly endowed and anointed by God to speak the very words of God. See, God's prophets would speak on his behalf in different ways during different times, just as Hebrews chapter one tells us. We see Haggai. Haggai used to speak through sermons. Malachi. Malachi would do would speak on behalf of God through questions and answers. Zechariah would speak with mysterious signs and mysterious sayings. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The one true Jesus is the epitome of a prophet. Any word that contradicts Jesus. Hear me on this. Any word that contradicts Jesus or his teaching disciples must be rejected. Any word, any prophecy, any book, any literature, anything that contradicts, okay, it's important. It can't be both true and not true in the same way at the same time. Anything that contradicts the teachings of Jesus or his teaching apostles must be rejected. Why? Because God has already told us who we're supposed to listen to. Look at Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. It says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves to be alone. Jesus was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling white, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Now, let's stop there. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, who are seen as a triumvirate or the first tier of his disciples, however you want to see it, but he takes them to a high mountain by themselves so they can get alone. They're probably going to pray. They're probably going to fast. And it's the text says that Jesus is transfigured. What is that? <laughs> Bro, I don't know. All I know is that his figure was transformed, right? All I know is he didn't look like the same old dude. He didn't look like average Joe from the prophecy anymore. 
he was transfigured. And it said that he, he shone, he was glistening, he was glowing, his clothes were dazzling white. So much so that it probably blinded the eyes of Peter, James, and John. Then look what happens in verse 4. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So already, if you know me, I'm getting geeked out. Because if I'm here and I'm chilling with Jesus already, I'm like, yo. But then Elijah and Moses show up and they're talking with Jesus. They're having a conversation. I'm eavesdropping. I want to know everything that they're talking about. How they just show up. I'm nervous. I'm shook. I'm excited. I'm like, my emotions will be everywhere right now. Look at verse five. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say since they were terrified. Of course they were terrified. They go up there to pray with Jesus. Jesus starts transforming and glowing, and all of a sudden, Elijah and Moses show up, and they start having a conversation. Of course, I'm going to say, yo, what's going on? These are the foremost prophets of the Old Testament. Moses, the representative of the law. Elijah, a representative of the prophets, two of the most renowned prophets in the entirety of the Bible are standing before you with Jesus. And what does Peter say? How about I make three tabernacles, one for each of you? As if Elijah and Moses were on the same level with Jesus. God has something to say about that. Look what happens in verse seven. A cloud appeared overshadowing them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. You know, it's crazy. It would be tempting for me to listen to Moses and do what Moses says in that moment. Or it would be tempted for me to listen to the prophet Elijah and do what Elijah is calling me to do in that moment. But the cloud came over them and, 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 and overshadowed them, overtake them. And God the Father spoke from heaven and he said, this is my son. Listen to him. What happened in verse 8? Suddenly... Looking around, they no longer saw anyone except for who? Jesus. What Jesus says goes. Jesus is not only the one we should listen to, but he's the prophet that all the other prophets were pointing to. You see, you saw Elijah there who prefigured the prophetic work of Jesus. You see Moses there who wrote of the Messiah to come in the person of Jesus. In fact, in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, and in Luke 24, verse 44, and in John chapter 5, verse 39, and in John chapter 1, we see this, and in, in particularly in Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. What's he saying? That the whole Bible is pointing to Jesus from Genesis to Malachi or from Moses to Zechariah, however you want to lay it out. It's all pointing us to one person, to one man, to the prophet of all prophets. It's pointing us to Jesus. The real Jesus is a prophet. Now, if Jesus is the epitome of a prophet, 
and God told us that we need to be listening to him, then we need to take heed to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24. It says in verse five, Jesus says this, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah and they will deceive many. Verse 11, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Don't fall for these false prophets and these false teachers who preach to you another Jesus. We worship the real one alone. And we know we worship the real Jesus because we want to worship the Jesus that the scriptures teach. If the scriptures teach it, then this is the Jesus that we worship. Jesus said that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father but through him. And if he is a prophet who speaks on behalf of God, then these words ring true. We need to get Jesus right. Jesus is a prophet of the Most High God. But secondly, Jesus is a a priest and an eternal sacrifice for all who believe. You see, a prophet brings God in his word to the people. That's what a prophet does. A prophet brings God and his word to the people. But a priest, a priest brings the people and their sins to God. A priest brings the people and their sins to God. A prophet brings God and his word to the people. The priest takes the people and their sins and brings them to God. The job of a priest is to intercede for people by offering sacrifice and prayers on their behalf. We see this in Hebrews chapter five, verse one. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed in matters. Here it is in matters pertaining to God for the people to do what? To offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. You see, sin drove a wedge between man and God. We see this all the way back in Genesis chapter three. Where man, Adam and Eve, are kicked out of the garden, kicked out of the presence of God because of their disobedient sin. And ever since then, we have been trying to atone for the sin that we have committed. Yet God in Genesis 3 promised that he himself would deal with the sin. He gave something called the proto-euangelion. It was the pre-gospel, the prototype gospel. He said that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the snake. And therefore, the seed of the woman, who will trace it down, will lead us all the way to the person of Jesus, is going to crush the head of the snake, who's also known as the serpent, the devil, and the dragon. He's going to crush him in his works. Sin drove a wedge between us and God, but God said, there's coming a Messiah. There's coming someone to save you. But in the meantime, God instituted a sacrificial system, a means by which it would temporarily satisfy his wrath against sin. Hence, uh, take note of the word temporarily. He would temporarily do so. See, a priest's job was hard. A priest would offer gifts and sacrifices on behalf of the people to God. You see, God demanded life for sin. You see, the wages of sin is death. And so uh, some, something had to die in order to atone for the sins that were committed by the people. And so a priest would spend waking hours slitting the throats of bulls and goats and lambs and taking the blood and offering it as a substitute for the sin of the person so that the person would not have to give their own blood to atone for their own sin. 
You see, but the problem was that the blood of bulls and goats only temporarily satisfied God's wrath. It wouldn't eternally take care of it. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says that the blood of bulls and goats only temporarily, only temporarily do so. The only way to atone for this for our sins permanently is if we have a high priest who offers up an eternally perfect sacrifice. The only way to atone for our sins permanently is if we have a high priest who offers up an eternally perfect sacrifice. For only an eternally perfect sacrifice will atone for all who believe for all of eternity. And hence, Jesus is our high priest and our eternally perfect sacrifice because he goes to God on our behalf with his own blood as the atoning agent. No more blood of bulls and goats. That doesn't cut it. God says that doesn't satisfy my wrath for all of eternity. And so the eternal one himself comes before. And we'll see that when we talk about Jesus as God in the flesh. The eternal one himself gives of his life and he enters into the holy of holies and offers up his own blood, his own eternal blood on behalf of those who will repent and believe in the name of Jesus. Thus satisfying the wrath of God for all of eternity for those who believe. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12. It says he entered the most holy place once for all time, right? That's what a priest does. The high priest would enter into the temple and go through these layers, these, these different rooms until he entered the holy of holies. And he would enter into the most holy place with blood in a basin. And he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And he would confess the sins of Israel onto, uh, he would confess the sins of Israel while spilling the blood on the mercy seat. And that blood was to be a representative or an atoning representative for the blood of Israel. Thereby, when he comes out of there, he would place his hand on a goat and he would confess the sins into the goat and he would go. And that's called expiation. That's a whole nother thing. But Hebrews 9.12 says that he, Jesus, he did what the high priest in the Old Testament did. He entered into the holy of holies. Right. He entered into the holy place once for all time, not by the blood of bulls and uh, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. He went in there and offered up his own blood. And what did he win? What did he do? He obtained eternal redemption. Y'all hear me. If Jesus doesn't make atonement for your sins, you must make atonement for them. The payment for sin is death via God's wrath. Romans 6, 23. And you don't want to come face to face with God on those terms. Mm -mm. See, it's funny how no man feels death until they lay on their deathbed. It's funny how no man fears God until they're face to face with the Lord Almighty. Paying for your own sins is not something you want to do. That's not something you want to do. God in his grace sent his son to be a mediator, to intercede and to pay the penalty of our sin or on behalf of all who would trust in the work of Jesus on the cross. If you would but believe in the real one and know that the work of Jesus on the cross was enough to atone for your sin and you don't need to add any works to it. All you must do is place your trust, place your faith in Jesus. 
follow Jesus. Believe on Jesus. Give yourself unto Jesus and trust every waking moment of your life, your breath, everything to the Savior who gave his life that he might redeem you, a sinner, in the ultimate act of love. Oh Lord Jesus, we praise you because you didn't have to give your life, but you gave your life to redeem a sinner like me. How can I not show gratitude in giving my life back unto you? Oh Lord, you are worthy of praise and glory. He is a mediator between us and God. That's what the priest does. That's what the priest did. And that's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus is. First Peter chapter two, verse five says, there is no one. I'm sorry. Says there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Verse six. What did he do? Who gave himself as a ransom for all. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 26. But now he, Jesus, but now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Despite what someone may tell you, the real Jesus gave his life to pay for the sins of many. And there is no need for you to add anything to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. The Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, black Hebrew Israelites will all tell you that you need to add obedience to the law or a work to the cross in order to earn eternal salvation. See, the blood of their Jesus isn't enough to save the sinner from the wrath of God. That's a different Jesus. Because the blood of my Jesus is able to redeem all who place their faith in him. And it's not because I'm trying to make things easy. It's because God promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden that he would send a redeemer. And it's the job of the redeemer to redeem. It's not me. I'm not the redeemer. I'm the one being saved by the hands of the redeemer. I can't add to his work. Colossians chapter 2 Verse 13 through 14, this is what it says about the real one. And when you, us, when we were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, who? He. Who? Jesus. What did he do? By himself. Made you alive with him. What else did he do? He forgave us all, how many? All of our trespasses. What else did Jesus do? Not with us. He erased, you see that? Jesus, he erased the certificate of debt and its obligations that was against us or opposed to us. And he has taken those, that debt, he has taken it away by what? By nailing it to the cross. He did all the work. Look at Galatians chapter three. <laughs> are you so foolish? After beginning by the spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? That right there is enough. God has opened your eyes. Are you now perfecting your faith by your actions and your works? No, it is a response to the grace of God that we obey the commands of God because we love God. 
And Jesus says, if you love me, you do what I say. You keep my commandments. And yes, Lord, I love you not to be saved. I mean, yes, Lord, I, I keep your commandments not to be saved, but out of gratitude and love for what you have done for me because your work was enough. It was the work of Jesus and what he has done. Galatians 3. Oh, are you so foolish after beginning by the spirit? Are you now finishing by the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing if in fact it was for nothing? So then does God give you the spirit and does God give you the spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law? Or is it by believing what you heard? Just like Abraham, who believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. And it's funny, when we try to do righteous acts apart from faith, they are counted as filthy rags. But when we do righteous acts as a result of faith, they are credited as righteousness. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 through 25. Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. And this is talking about a priest will eventually die and can't continue his job of intercession between God and man. Verse 24. But because he remains forever, who's he? Jesus. Because Jesus remains forever, he holds his priesthood, what? Permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely. You see those words? He is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus presented his life before God the Father in exchange for the lives of those who would trust in him by grace through faith. You see, Jesus is the prophet of God. Everything he said is true and trustworthy. We must heed his words, but he is also our high priest and our eternal sacrifice. If we come unto him, he will represent us before God. He brings us God's word and he brings us before God. And it is only by faith in his name that we are deemed righteous, that we are deemed holy, that we are deemed pure to stand before God and dwell in his presence forever. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for giving your life for sinners like us because you and only you can redeem the likes of me. I'm filthy. I'm a dog, Lord, but you redeemed me. You redeemed dogs like me who are wretches and full of sin, ungrateful. Lord, thank you for sending your son. Jesus is a prophet of the most high God. Jesus is a priest in eternal sacrifice for the people. Next week, we're going to see Jesus as God in the flesh. We're going to see Jesus as king and servant. And we're going to see that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace and allowing us the blessed opportunity to consider the real one, the Jesus of the scriptures, the Jesus that Paul preached, the Jesus that walked this earth 2000 years ago. Would we worship the real one, O God? And would you give us ears to hear the details that tell us that we are not talking about the same Jesus, but that when we do come together, we will come to learn and worship at the feet of our master. Oh Lord, save your people. Open the eyes of your people. Draw us near to you. 
In Jesus' name, we thank you and pray. Amen.